to me? Yeah. Okay. So All right. You can just keep an eye on it. Okay. All right. We'll All right, see. guys, we're going to get started. Uh, we have Dr. Tui coming with us. Actually, this was a talk. Jen, did you get nervous when you saw her name? No, Tui she well. emailed me asking oh. me to put questions in my lecture. I was like, not again. <laughs> <laughs> um, this was a topic we wanted to have talked about last month uh, in our OB month, but since it's so important and since we do kind of we need to be well-versed in it, we want her to come, she offered to come this month and talk to us. So Dr. Tui is going to talk to us about uh, domestic violence in women. So you grouped it under OB. I find that very interesting. This is not inappropriate. Um, sorry that uh, I'm a little slow today. I'm having um, a little bit of a migraine today. So uh, if I do like collapse, it's because I'm having a GI bleed from all the uh, uh, NSAIDs that I that I took. You know, it's like ah. Uh, I, yeah, yeah. So it's it's. I'm in good company. I have people who can help me. Uh, so I, you know, uh, it is an important topic, and I I hope that that you guys keep reminding yourselves about it in everyday your everyday life, and I hope that we can come up with some of the reasons why you should do that. I I am not um, a big numbers person as far as data goes for domestic violence because um, they're all uh, baloney. I have, uh, you know, and I think that is part of the real problem that we have with physicians not embracing domestic violence as far as what they should do, what, how important is it, because data is just so difficult to obtain in domestic violence. And every time you look at a study, you can, um, you, you can criticize it many, many ways. Um, and throughout the years that I've been involved with domestic violence, I've kind of gotten away from really looking at numbers and percentages so much as just looking at my individual patients and my experience. Um, I've been involved in the county for a long time in domestic violence and it started out with my um, pretty much my during my residency I was reading a lot of numbers those those numbers that I'm so scared about you know and they look pretty awful. I was like my god you know uh, where are my lectures you know uh, here I am an OBGYN and how come nobody's telling me about this this is such a big deal for women and um, so I um, nosy that I am I called the DA and I said like do these numbers have any like what, what's going on here and and I got involved ever since so I was part of the beginning of the Orange County Family Violence Council and uh, it's been around for a couple decades now because I'm getting pretty old and um, and I have um, kind of restarted the death review team in the county for for domestic violence so uh, my committee um, reviews all the deaths in the county that are due to domestic violence and uh, we had we are trying to coordinate with other death review teams throughout the county and the state and the nation uh, looking for, for data and one of the things that is so obvious when you do something like this is you realize that our data really is terrible um, even death data that which is really uh, what's the probably the most objective thing we have nationwide through the Department of Justice is quite tough uh, because it, you realize that every PD has very different ways of counting you know deaths how how do you know if it's DV related or not um, and it depends on your definition um, you know there are a lot of things that are not recognized as, as DV or, or just they're, they're coded as simple assaults or, or murders or whatever and and unless you're specifically coding it as DV related there are many counties that they're not even counting the numbers right and then that's what's given to the Department of Justice that's very disturbing as far as numbers are concerned um, certainly it's grossly underreported and as a physician if you start really looking for domestic violence and talking to your patients about domestic violence you start realizing the magnitude of this problem 
Uh, what's also very interesting uh, as an OBGYN is I've started routinely asking women whether they had a history of sexual abuse as a child. That's just astounding. <laughs> it is astounding. Every other patient tells you, well, yes, I have this problem. I've never really told anybody about it. And I, I go, my God, if you, know, if you don't specifically ask, they're not going to volunteer the information. And, and, and why should we care? It's because those kinds of experiences and those kinds of problems really decrease the quality of health in a patient's life and really affects their personal life and their personal relationships and is so related to addiction issues um, and all kinds of health problems. So I, I do believe that, they, that as physicians we need to be aware of, of a lot of these issues and a lot of these problems and uh, domestic violence, um, we can argue the the numbers we can but there's some you know some data out there that we can share a little bit today um but it's it is a big deal it's kind of the bottom line and that's good enough for me and it's good enough for me to know that i should be concerned about it every day and i ask my patients every day um and i think um i think i've made a difference in a lot of people's lives in the last couple of decades i have uh, no no data to show you um but i will tell you that it is so common that I will get a phone call from a patient that will say, Jerry, do you remember you saw me a, a couple of years ago? And, and uh, remember you said that I could always, like, I could always call you if, if, uh, if I was scared or if somebody was, well, well, you know, can I talk to you? And I was like, oh, my God. It happens all the time. And I think it happens because you put yourself out there as somebody who's willing to listen and who's not horrified that this is happening. So I just kind of want to go over a few things with you that maybe I've learned a little bit along the way. Some of it has some data attached to it. Some of it does not. And you're just going to have to live with that. Well, let's see here. Okay, this is what's out there in all these pamphlets. You know, like about 4,000 women are murdered every year in a domestic violence situation. Um, I think the, the, the reason to look at mortality data is, you know, what, that number is maybe some of the better numbers that we have. But for every woman that's killed, can you even begin to imagine how many more women are battered that don't die? That's obviously many, 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 many times more. And the, that's quite shocking. Some of the, the data coming out of the, the county show, reveals that about one in three girls are in a violent dating relationship in high school here in Orange County. Um, which is, it's just amazing. And I do spend some time with high school students. And when you talk to them, you start talking about dating violence, it's like the whole room goes very quiet. And you start realizing that, oh, they're paying attention now. They know what I'm talking about. It's quite, quite shocking. And what's really shocking is how normal these girls are kind of starting to see the daily violence that they're putting up with. What's really shocking, too, is that they're fighting back. That this generation is not my generation. So girls are armed, they've got guns, they've got knives, they, they fight back, and the violence quickly escalates into uh, pretty amazing proportions. Um, I have found that to be the big dif generational difference that we're having right now. Um, we do know that the great majority of, the, of not great, but the, the majority of female homicides do occur by spouses or intimate partners. So, mm-hmm. Homicide is it always is there always a history of domestic violence? So in other words, like Scott Peterson and things like that, are those? I think there's different okay. different categories, and I think that we're not paying attention enough. Mm -hmm. Now being on the death review team, it's been fascinating because I do think that you have a couple of things going on. You've got the cycle of violence, chronic 
abuse that gets worse, that's emotional, that's also physical and economical. Um, and then you also have this other category of people that just snap and kill their family or that just go crazy and they kill themselves and their family. And I, I find that they're kind of separate. I mean, some of them is slow escalation of violence and finally, you know, it just gets so bad that they strangle somebody and they realize, oh my God, I did that. And then there's somebody who just has not really had too much. A lot of those cases are very uh, religious. Uh -huh. You know, they hear voices, they hear God telling them to do all this stuff, that kind of a thing. Um, and and I, I think those deaths are very difficult to prevent because it's always the question, can you prevent these kinds of deaths? I think the ones that you probably can prevent are the slow, sidious increase of violence in, in the typical cycle of violence kind of situation, which I think that's what you guys can, can intervene in very, very much so. Um, it's, it's supposed to be, domestic violence is supposed to be by far the number one reason women are hurt. So that doesn't kind of jive with what we're usually teaching in school, with our curriculum, with what we're, you know, I know as an OBGYN, we spend tons and tons of time looking at slides of tumors that are going to affect one in 30,000 people. And yet, if this is such a common thing, where we're talking about maybe one in four women saying that they have had violence in their life, why is it that we're not dealing about, you know, we have to really decide how we're spending our time in our medical education and what it is that we're learning about. We do tend to focus on very rare things. They're interesting, they're objective, and you can get really nice slides. But then when you're talking about social difficult problems that have no easy solutions, everybody kind of wants to shy away from that. What am I doing here? Am I doing something dumb? Let's see. No? There you go. So I guess the question is, you know, who are these people that are battered? You know, can we find them? Can we identify them? What are they like? Does anybody know what caused this injury? A burn. It's a cigarette burn. So we do not have time in 30 minutes to talk about the dynamics and the, the psychosocial aspects of domestic violence. But they are very big, and we're part of it. Because I think that's, you know, how we fit in, how we understand our prejudices, how we view these women, how we view their, their partners, really has a lot to do with how we're going to respond. I think um, most of us by now have heard the whole, you know, the cliche that it's about power and control and the abuse of power and control. Um, obviously, um, that's not just physical. And it never really starts as physical. It always starts in many, many other insidious ways. Um, you'd be amazed how many healthcare professionals have some difficult relationships themselves, have some a uh, lot of issues in power and control, whether you're a female physician or a male physician. And uh, nurses, I have so many nurses that have come to me as, as battered women, which um, is very interesting. They're very uh, knowledgeable. They're very educated, and they might not be the typical patient that you might think of as being battered. Um, and I have been, I'm always shocked over the years when I come up with somebody that it doesn't fit our pattern. Because we tend to have pictures in our head of who is battered. And we're going to be right a fraction of the time. And then everybody who doesn't fit that mold, we're going to miss. And we're going to, we're going to, we're not going to, we're going to be shocked every time. And I think that's just human nature. Um, what would you think would be the most easy way to intimidate and to control somebody in today's modern society? Money. You can't do anything without money.
And in our society, we're pretty isolated. There are a lot of families who don't have mom and dad close by, who don't have brothers and sisters close by. We have a very immigrant, a very highly immigrant population, some of them who don't assimilate very well, who don't have people they can relate to. The isolation becomes amazing. And as soon as someone is cut off from friends and family, from support network, and it's really just that partner that they have, they don't they lose their ability to kind of have a check checkpoint. You know how, you know, what, what are friends for, right? Except for calling and, you know, talking about how horrible your boyfriend is. And then he's going to tell you, hey, you know what? You can't put up with that. You know, it's, it's, we need people to kind of give us a check and balance. It's kind of like a mirror. And when you don't have that, it's amazing how you lose that ability to be objective and you start losing the ability to see, yeah, this is really abnormal behavior. This isn't right. We kind of need other people to help us with that. Probably one of the reasons why these abusive relationships very quickly have a very strong element of isolation. No, you know, I don't want you to see that girl. She's, she's a slut. She's not good for you. Uh, you know, no, I don't like, um, you know, your, your sister is a bad influence on you. I don't want you to talk to her again. Those kinds of things happen all the time. And, and little by little in controlling and abusive relationships, you find that, that the, the person can no longer talk and interact with people um, like, like we would expect. We didn't really start off um, talking about whether it's men or women who are better. We're assuming women, and of course that's the wrong assumption. I deal with women as an OBGYN, so I primarily think of my patients as, as women. Uh, there is no doubt that men are battered as well, or they're in abusive relationships. There's a little bit of difference, though, in the dynamics. In our society, we still have, number one, the most serious common frequent injuries, including death, are are on women perpetrated by men that's and we also still have that that true situation where men have more power in most situations either money wise strength wise position wise in the community it still seems to be a big issue um, there I have noticed in my death data that there is a more, more of a parity between deaths between men and women that used to be I think in the past um, but the chronic uh, abuse and injury that is short of death. It's not like the horrible fight where boom, I shoot you when that's done. The chronic low level of injury that slowly insidiously increases year after year is, is much more um, against women. Don't forget also that, that uh, lesbian relationships have violence, as, as do homosexual relationships. We, we have to be careful that we are screening everybody and talking about everyone. But I, I still think it's fair to think primarily of your female patients, or at least uh, uh, initially think more, more commonly about them being victims. Um, women who are battered, like we said, are isolated. They have a hard time making decisions. It's almost like your depressed patient who has a, you know, who just can't move who can't move forward. Um, I, I had one patient that just couldn't even decide what she wanted for lunch. She just was stuck, uh, very paralyzed, probably because she's not used to making decisions and someone else is making all the decisions for her. So once she's either free of that relationship or trying to move forward, it's very hard for her to begin to do that. And that's part of their therapy and their, and their, their move to, to go on to a new life is learning how to make small decisions. Never have money. They're covering up with uh, clothes, kind of like your anorexic patient. They're covering up bruises. You know, come to work with sunglasses, that kind of thing. Accident prone, supposedly. Absenteeism at work. And there's a whole curriculum for how to recognize domestic violence in the workforce. Um, frequent, common, um, having to leave real quickly, uh, getting a lot of phone calls. Somebody's checking up on whether they're actually there. That kind of stuff is a big deal. 
Non-compliance is a really big part in healthcare, and it's actually one of the reasons why I think uh, uh, docs uh, really fail some of their patients. It's very common out there in private practice out in the community when your patient misses a couple of appointments that you write her a very nice letter that says, dear, dear Mrs. Jones, you know, I, I, I'm so sorry that, uh, you know, you can't seem to come to your appointments and uh, I can't take care of patients who don't come, you know, <laughs> basically go find another doc. Here's a list of people in your area. We're like really judgmental. <laughs> and, I, you know, once people are in private practice, I'm amazed at how people are, feel free to do that. Um, I think that it should be a huge red flag. You know, what, what you know, I'm so sorry that you're not here. Um, uh, any reason, you know, can, can I reappoint you frequently? Is there something that you need? Um, those kinds of things I think are much more appropriate. And in, in, in there the guise or the umbrella as being fearful of liability because your patient is not compliant, I think we allow ourselves to do a lot of things that are really not part of our, our oath and are really not part of who we should be. Um, there's no problem with liability, just document. Patient didn't come. I called her back and asked her if she could be reappointed. I'm worried about her and this is what I'm going to do. That's all you need to do. But it's, it's kind of amazing how, how many doctors just say, oh, I can't, I can't deal with you anymore. You're, you're kind of too difficult. You don't do what I tell you to do kind of thing. Um, moving frequently so that we have a hard time tracking them and, and figuring out whether they're coming back for meds or for further injury is always a big thing. And usually accompanied by somebody, uh, by their partner. Uh, very rarely do they come by their own, and that's kind of a, a huge problem for us in the healthcare setting. So we believe from what we have with several studies that are out there and, and, and while I worry about the numbers and I don't want to say that every other woman in the world is battered and I think that th those things can be exaggerated and they can turn doctors off to say, you know, this is all baloney, I don't know, I'm not even going to listen to it anymore. I think that we've had an element of that and that's a problem. Um, a lot of the, the studies have similar numbers, surprisingly, which kind of makes you look a little twice. So this is what's out there right now. We think that about 25% of suicide attempts by women are associated with domestic violence. I think that's actually, that could be even a low number. Um, it is so common in the psych world to see people who are depressed, who are bipolar, whatever, who to assess patients and give a medication, admit them, whatever, 5150s, but do they ask the question about whether they have been chronically battered and abused at home? That's rare. You need to make that as part of your assessment because, you know, someone who is uh, in an abusive relationship for 10, 20 years, they get to suicide very quickly, and a lot of them do. Um, it, and it's such a known entity in the psych world that women have uh, two or three times the, 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 the episodes of suicide attempts than men. Well, why is that? And, and why do they have more depression and more anxiety? And we don't understand that a lot. A lot of it might be something as simple as this. Um, we know that uh, it's very high in pregnancy. Certainly domestic violence goes up uh, during pregnancy, and we're not quite sure why that happens. Certainly a lot of bad things happen in pregnancy. Your, your coping skills go down. You don't feel so well. Financial stress is on the marriage. All those things are probably really good contributors. Um, the other thing that I've noticed in pregnancy is that women start really thinking about their violence and their abusive relationship while they're pregnant because it's not just about them anymore.
So I think a lot of times what happens is women start asking too many questions. They start fighting back. They start saying, I'm not going to put up with this anymore and all this kind of stuff. And then the violence escalates because of that. I'm always telling women, you know, this is, you don't, you don't need to fight about this. You need to get the heck away and get somebody to help you to confront the situation and decide, you know, you don't just start having an argument in the middle of the kitchen after dinner that you don't want to be treated like this anymore. Uh, very dangerous situation and probably why the violence really goes up uh, during pregnancy. Um, but this is the number that you're concerned about, that they're looking at about a quarter uh, or more of women that show up to the ER um, are supposedly victims of domestic violence. And I, I don't know how good that number is, but supposedly one in four women have had violence in their life anyway, so that's probably not too far-fetched. What's the problem with this number? What's the problem? All of that, whether they admit to it. It's not all injuries. So it's not just the broken arm, it's not just the gunshot wound or the knife wound. We're talking all women who show up to the ER. And so that's the problem, that we're not, we are not really looking at, at all of our patients as potential victims for domestic violence, just like we're not doing that in the primary care clinics. So I think that's going to be a big, big deal. Um, we know that in child abuse, it's very clear that at least 50 to 60 percent of mothers of ch abused children are battered. And we miss it all the time. We report child abuse all the time without paying close attention to whether mom is battered too or even asking the question. That it's blown my mind because I'm very involved with, with CPS and, and of course with, I'm on the child death review as well. And I'm just fascinated how many times we do a pretty good job of looking at child abuse and we will look at questions and we're, we've kind of, we're, we're geared that way. We've kind of accepted that that's our role. But then we forget about mom and that's a big problem. Um, internal medicine clinics, but you know, this is why we're having some issues that, you know, these women are, are, are us. They're our friends, they're our mothers, they're our sisters. There's nothing special or funky about these battered women. They're just regular women. And I think this is where we have kind of lost the boat a little bit in, in medicine. Um, law enforcement has come a really long way in the last couple of decades. Uh, starting with the domestic violence um, uh, council, we got together judges and attorneys and cops. We've done so much education in the law enforcement side in the county that really and truly we've made tremendous strides. The ability to have uh, restraining orders at 24 hours, there's a dedicated court, um, judges are much more educated. Uh, we're starting to slide back again because of all the budget cuts, but you can't believe how many advances we made. And we didn't make the same advance in medicine. Very few docs are really practicing very differently than they did 10, 20 years ago compared to how cops are approaching things and how they have special training for them. I think there's been a lot of incentive in, in law enforcement to do better, primarily because it was recognized that DV calls were the most lethal calls that they could have. So once cops realized, you know what, it behooves us to be trained at this and to know what the heck we're doing and understand the dynamics and not just knock on the door and, and tell everybody to cool off and to walk around the block for a few minutes and then come back, um, we realized that, um, that they needed some extra special attention. We've really done quite well in Orange County. Orange County is considered one of the top models nationwide for how we're coordinating police education, um, a victim witness issues, um, a criminal court and family court. So we, we've done actually a really good job. The piece that's very kind of absent in Orange County is really physician response and physician knowledge and physician involvement, physician ability to call the police. 
a physician calling CPS, APS, all kinds of things. It's actually quite limited. And uh, uh, believe me, the DA's paying attention because they're coming to me. All right, Tui, why aren't they doing better? Why are we, why do you have two cases of domestic violence in the last six months in several hospitals? I go, oh, people aren't looking. So that's kind of my question to you guys. So if this is all true, and this is supposedly that only about 1 in 20 patients in the healthcare setting are being recognized as victims of domestic violence, the real question for us is why? So why are we recognizing so few? So with the numbers that I'm giving you, you guys should have seen like, you know, three or four people today, right, that are known victims of, of abuse. And you should have made referrals, and you should have looked and see what kind of safety issues are, what you needed to do. Uh, and I bet you you didn't do that. I bet you didn't see three or four people today, did you? I don't think so. So why are we missing so many patients with violence in their lives? What do you think? What's the problem? I mean, we're nice people. You're not asking. I think that's the number one reason. We're not asking routinely. And why? That's actually a big thing. I mean, I think, we're, I think we care about our patients. I think that we're not trying to be cavalier. I mean, I, I think sometimes the DA and the attorneys are so ticked off at us that they're like, I'm so disgusted with the medical profession, I don't know what to do. Because they see a victim who will have been from ER to ER to ER, not once being screened for domestic violence, until she's ultimately murdered or hurt so badly that the DA is going, what the hell is going on? Not one ER asked whether this injury was a result of domestic violence. Are you kidding me? And I'm like, well, we have issues. What are our issues? You guys know. You guys are living in the trenches. Time. You guys are running your butts off. It's not like you have a whole bunch of time to go. And, you know, gee, you know, has anybody hurt you in the last 10 years? You know, you don't have time. And it has to be kind of systemized. It has to be part of everything that we do every single day. And it's the systems issue. It can't just be an individual's issue. It has to do how we screen people, how we, how we move through the day, and how much staff we have, all those kinds of things. What else? That's not the only thing, guys, because time's bad, time's horrible for me, and somehow I manage to do it, and it's never convenient, but somehow you manage to do what you need to do. Why else? There's other stuff. Resources? Like if they answered yes, we don't. You don't know what to do. And what is wrong about us as doctors? Number one is, our number one fault is that we can never say that we don't know something. It's a disease, and, it's, and we're teaching it to you guys because what attending will tell you I don't know? Very few. I have decided that it's my mission to say at every time we go to rounds that I don't know something because nobody will say that. I'm sure that my residents think I'm an idiot, but that's okay. It's, it's, it's kind of like we've developed this thing where you're grilled, right? Da -da 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 -da. What do you know? Da -da 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 -da. Keep asking, keep asking, keep asking. You have to know everything and guess what they're going to ask you. And, and if, you just, if, you ask you, if they ask you something you don't know it, you're devastated the whole day. At least my residents are. I think they're crazy. And I, I just think, well, what the heck is that? What's wrong with us? Aren't we here to learn? Were we supposed to know everything before we even got to residency? And then we treat our students that way too. Before they even start the rotation, they're supposed to know everything about OBGYN. And then they start, the residents start grilling them. And I go, guys, it's the first day. Give them a break. <laughs> so when we don't know something, we are failing and we have not achieved. And do we know how to, how to cure domestic violence? Do we know how to take care of it completely? Uh, we have no idea.
And we also don't know what's right for each individual patient. That makes us very nervous. We really like it when there's a dosage of insulin that we know we're supposed to give, and we know how, a, how to give it, and then we're done. It's a quick fix. We feel good about ourselves. We go home. You know, we saved lives today. But then when you have a problem that's chronic, that's low, and you guys are the worst, right, because you're ER docs. So you are here because your personality is such that you want to fix. You want to evaluate, you want to fix, you want to go home and you feel good. God help you that you're dealing with something like chronic addiction or depression, <laughs> that you have to sit with that patient forever and see her once a week for like the rest of your life. And you're just going to, oh. you pick this profession because of that, right? Because that's your personality. Most physicians are kind of that way. We all know that psychists, they're out, they're out there, right? They're, they're, they're a different breed. They're a different breed. And, you know, and, and I do a lot of psych in my practice, and I have recognized that probably I like doing that kind of stuff. I like the more chronic, slow, getting to know patients really well kind of thing. Probably what has helped me deal with domestic violence a little bit more. But domestic violence is such a complex social issue that has housing problems, that has employment problems, that has childcare issues, that have things that are so beyond us that, you know what, we're like, okay, what, God forbid she say yes. I was walking in the clinic uh, a few years ago, and I, whenever I'm attending at the clinic, you know, it's a shock because I don't do it that often anymore. And everybody knows, you know, all the residents and students all know that I'm involved with domestic violence. So I, they see me coming down the hall. One guy sees me coming down the hallway. And I could just see the shock in his eyes. And he, he opens the door to the patient room. And he goes, no one's beating you up, right? <laughs> I was like, all right, okay, yes. We, we do need to ask. We need to ask in certain ways. And, and I, I just think that, that we lose sight of it. We, we don't understand, I don't think we've internalized how important it is, how much it affects your patients. And at the end of the day, you might have gotten the insulin dose right. But if she's going to go home and have a broken nose or be horribly depressed and abused, did we do anything for her? Like, did that even that dose make a difference? Like, who gives a shit if her glucose is a little high when she's going to have, going to get the heck beat out of her? Priorities. What really matters? What's the most important thing in somebody's, somebody's life? We can't do everything for everyone, but you guys are the front lines. And you see so many people that are dying for somebody to ask them the question. So when I go to the shelter and when I have talked to women that have finally talked to somebody and ended up in a shelter, I often ask them, what did their physicians do for them? Like, did their doctors ask them? Did they help them? And most of them say no. But every once in a while, I'll get a woman who goes, yeah, you know, about five years ago, my doc said he was worried about me, and he wasn't sure what was going on, and he was worried that somebody was hurting me, and he wanted me to help, to ask for help if I needed it. I wasn't ready to do that then, and I didn't say yes then, but I never forgot it, and that's the reason I'm here today. So our measure of success is always in cures, you know, in medicine, in our awards, and all those plaques that we get, that we get to hang up and all that stuff. We have to remember that we cannot just measure our success with things that we see, the cures that we see in front of us. If you've had time with someone, if you were able to educate someone, you have no idea what your impact is. I think some of my strongest impact has been at cocktail hour when I talk to people about the importance of these kinds of social issues. You are very powerful as a physician and people respect you. And even if you're talking, even if you're just talking to a patient or their family or whatever, they will listen to you. Just asking the question is very powerful. 
How many times have I been asked in the office, why are you asking me that? Why, why are you asking me that? Well, you might not know that domestic violence is not one of the number one reasons women are hurt in the United States. I ask all my patients that. And all of a sudden, they'll, they'll kind of like, well, no, I've never had an issue. You know, I'm kind of worried about my sister, though. Something's kind of funky with her. Educating and screening is powerful. And it's far more powerful than getting the right dose of one certain medication, necessarily. So I think there's a lot of reasons why we do not screen carefully. We are not picking up these patients. I am advocating and have always advocated universal screening. And I want you to think a little bit about that in the last few minutes that we have. All those things we talked about. You know, we, we, we God forbid, we don't have the time. We, we don't want to offend our patients. That, that lady that asked me, well, why are you asking me? I think there's, there was a study. I actually have an article I'm going to pass out when I, when I leave. It's just a simple little um, reminder of a, of, a, of a program that was started at UNC uh, in the ER. And it was a, about universal screening. And then they found that even though they had this really dedicated program to screen everybody in the ED, that people weren't doing it. And one of the number one reasons was they didn't want to offend the patients. They were very awkward in how they do it. You know, I promise you guys that if you start asking every single patient, you will not be awkward by the end of the day. You guys are just too damn busy. You will learn how to do it. And I remember the days when we were very awkward about asking about HIV risks and things like that, drug use, you know, when, oh my God, it was, oh my God, we don't, we don't worry about that now because we've done it so much. We do it for every patient. We need to get that way about violence. It's a common occurrence in people's home. And if you tell people that you screen everyone, it's not you looking at someone and going, hmm, she looks a little suspicious. You know, I'm going to ask her. We're not just going to ask our black patients or uneducated patients or our teenagers. We're going to actually screen everyone. Then it becomes much more powerful because it's, I think, primarily an educational tool. So I think that's the number one reason. I think universal screening is justified. Now, there's a lot of concern about that. Do you have the data to show that you're decreasing domestic violence? No, I'm going to tell you right now. But I can tell you that if you ask people and you get them resources and you get them help, you're going to make a difference in people's lives. That is good enough for me. And hopefully if we start doing, truly doing universal screening, we can get the data. Right now the data is so poor because it's so shoddy what we're asking or not asking. I've done some funny things throughout my uh, career. A couple of things was visit a few uh, ERs, a uh, couple of girlfriends and I, because you know how we are supposed to ask, right? You know, Jayco says we're supposed to ask, right? You've got checkboxes in your list that says, have you been battered or you're in an abusive relationship? So my girlfriends and I went to a few ERs in the county, and uh, interestingly enough, our patient records show that we were asked and that we said no. And we were never asked, and we never said no. People are just filling out stuff and checking boxes. And, you know, what the heck good is that? So... If you're talking about women, one in four, having violence in their life, maybe going home and being injured or injured further than what you're looking at, um, universal screening is justified. Lord have mercy. Remember your medical school, H&P? How much stuff are we asking and that we're teaching students to ask? But yet you might not screen for domestic violence when that's so much more common than, than anything else. What diagnosis can you guys think of that has this kind of, of incidence? It's zero. There's absolutely nothing. So, and then on top of that, you look at the family and the children, the repercussion and the, the domino effect of having one person that you see being in a violent relationship. I think it's a no-brainer that universal screening is, is justified. The question is, how do we do it? 
simply and easily. And there's a lot of questions that are out there, out there in the literature. I think it's simple. I think you just ask the damn question. I mean, I just don't think we have to make it super complicated. One of the things that's out there is like, do you feel safe at home? Well, you know, I think that's very general. I think it's very nebulous. And some people think that you're worried about fire. And so I, I concern myself. <laughs> You know, basically, you're in the ER, right? You're in an acute situation. I think you can be blunt. I think you guys can be very upfront. Are you, is this injury, did somebody do this to you? Are you okay? So do, you, do you need to tell me about what's going on at home? Somebody is here for other things. Now, of course, we got to recognize the fact that you're not just going to see injuries. Injuries are kind of easy. I mean, if you're going to miss domestic violence in a gunshot wound, guys, you're, you know, you're in the wrong profession, okay? Uh, we're talking about what makes it harder to diagnose, right? Gunshot wound, knife wound, what the hell? That's kind of dumb. What are we missing in the ER? What are we missing? Woman who comes with an anxiety attack. There you go. That's like number one, probably. Anxiety attacks. And what do we do? We're really good at giving a prescription for Valium. And what good is that going to do unless she's going to OD on it when she goes home and she's hopeless about it, right? Absolutely. Suicide attempts, anxiety attacks, depression, chest pain, all that stuff. All those multi-million dollar cardiac workups that we do for anxiety attacks, you know, which you kind of have to do. And, and, uh, but then you kind of have to say, what's going on with you? Anything else that we need to know? Is anybody hurting you at home? Anything we need to know further about you? What else? There's this one case, one of the reasons the DA was so upset few years ago was that there was a couple that came in. It wasn't our ER, thank God. Um, but it was a very good-looking couple, uh, very uh, nice, kind of yuppie couple in bike clothes. They were, she came in with a broken arm and some bruises, and uh, basically, oh, my God, you know, she, you know, it's Saturday morning, oh, put ice on it. Everybody loved this couple. He's great-looking. All the nurses loved him. She's gorgeous. Everybody loved her. And they were so nice to each other. And they patched her up. And they fixed her. They casted her. And while she is signing the release form, in the margin, she says, help me. And get handed it over to the nurse. And the nurse saw it. And she said, oh, oh, you know, Mrs. Jones, you forgot, you forgot a form. And brought her in and got her into a room by herself. She'd gone to like six ERs in the last year. She had been hurt, so had so many broken bones and so many stitches in the past year. And it was that case where the DS, not only are we missing domestic violence, we're missing injuries in the ER that are related to domestic violence. And it's because nobody thought that this couple looked like a couple involved with domestic violence. So nobody wanted to offend. Nobody wanted to assume. You're not assuming by asking. You're just asking. So what are the things that we need to remember? Private. You have to give her time with you without that husband that's glued to her side. He even went to the bathroom with her. Somebody was worried about somebody saying something. So you need to make it part of your routine. And if there's a huge balking about it, that should be a red flag. You know, it's like in my practice. I always have private time with my patient. Why shouldn't I? It's my patient. And it's, if there's some, somebody has a real big problem with that, then you just don't make a scene. Just make a note of it and figure out a way to get her a little more private where you can ask. Or later, you know, you don't want to come up, cause a huge blow up or have him leave without you getting some help. But pay attention to that because that's kind of weird. And then, of course, it should be simple. It shouldn't take your whole day because you're not going to do it. It's going to be a simple, quick question. 
and you're not going to say the right thing every single time. You're not going to catch everybody. You're not going to necessarily um, have fruit or have somebody say something to you, but you're planting some seeds and you're educating. And that should be a powerful thing for us. We don't necessarily have to have validation every single day that what we said to that patient is going to have be useful. I think, I think we're paralyzing ourselves. Our need to have randomized controlled trials for absolutely every interaction that we have with patients is paralyzing us. I think sometimes it's just common sense and our sense of humanity that can let us proceed. And I think that's what we need to bring back to our practices. Um, I said, don't forget to screen men, lesbians, the elderly. How do you screen men? What would you say? What would be kind of a, a common screening thing? You guys probably don't do it so much in the ER, but certainly in a primary care practice. What do you think? What's the one thing that violence is so associated with, really, really strongly associated with? Alcohol and addiction. So, you know, you are, you know we do screen people for their drinking. You know, how much do you drink? Are you concerned about your drinking? Are you having problems with it? That's kind of an a common problem and, and uh, a good way to start asking questions. Have you ever been concerned about your drinking or has anybody else been concerned about your drinking? Have you ever had been concerned about your anger? Have you ever been worried that you lose your temper and you lose control? Do you need help with that? Kind of like that. Because that's usually one of the best ways that people start saying, God, you know, you know what, I catch myself saying things and doing things that my dad did, and I don't want to do that. And you can refer people for anger management. They don't have to be court-referred. And that's my goal, is that people go there on their own. And because doctors want them to go there for help instead of because they're in jail and having problems. We need to be proactive to our patients, our men as well. So our opportunities, every patient in the ER, I think it's a no-brainer. I think it's important. I, labor and delivery. Prenatal visits, postpartum, very, very important because we know that the injury increases in pregnancy and postpartum. Admissions to the hospitals, we should be screening. Uh, during your routine annual exam. And any time you have an injury in a patient, for sure. So you notice a funny bruise, a broken bone, whatever. Don't assume. And I don't think it's enough to ask, what happened? And then you have to say, well, does that sound like it makes sense? Yes, the refrigerator fell on her arm. Okay, you know, I think it's okay to say... Well, you know, in my experience, when someone's had a bruise like that, someone's hurt them. Did anybody hurt you? Are you okay? It's okay to do that. That's your job. Remember that, that uh, what happens in pregnancy is only a foretelling of what's going to happen to that child because the overlap with child abuse is so great. It's estimated that one in six neonates go home to a violent home. It's our job in the front lines to try to catch that. So we, we talk a little bit about these, you know, what, what are the clues of domestic violence, various vague symptoms, kind of like depression. One day she comes to you for back pain, then she came for a yeast infection, then she came for a UTI, and you're going, what, what the hell is she doing in the ER? Inappropriate use of the ER is huge. And I remember, I'm old enough where there wasn't a residency program in, in the ED when I was training. So I was running back and forth from labor and delivery down to the ED. And but let me tell you, I would get called a lot. And I was always like, what the heck is that lady doing in the ER at 2 in the morning for something so stupid? And I was like, oh, running up and down those back stairs. Now I kind of know why. I wonder how many cases I missed when I was in training. Because it crossed my mind so many times. And we used to throw it off as, oh, you know, patients, they're just too lazy to go to the clinic during the day, or their husbands, uh, don't, they don't have transportation. And I go, oh, there's a lot more to it than that. Because there was a lot of frequent flyers. And I, I really feel terrible thinking about what I must have missed in all those years of training.
depression, anxiety, alcohol use, frequently missed appointments, all those things. Teenagers, guys, are huge risk. And pregnant teenagers, amazing. So when I have teenagers in my practice, I screen them initially, and then throughout the course of their prenatal care, I'll ask them again in different ways because their risk is so, so high. Uh, anyone who has increased dependence on their partner. So your handicapped patients, huge risk. Anybody with a disability. <clears throat> Deaf, blind, in wheelchairs, someone who's overly dependent. Kind of, this is kind of having overlaps, right, with elder abuse, correct? Because anyone who's overly dependent on their partner, you have issues of power and control, and you have uh, stress in that relationship, and it's a setup for abuse. Um, patients, I have found a lot of domestic violence in patients who come in complaining of decreased fetal movement. And it's because something has happened. You know, she got slammed against the wall, she got kicked in the stomach or whatever, and she's worried about her baby. So she doesn't want to say anything, so she'll come in and say, oh, gee, the baby's not moving, because she knows that will get a response from you. You'll check the baby, and then you say, oh, yeah, baby's moving fine, and then you send her home. I tell the screen in the OBER, you know, you got to screen and ask people, don't just do that. Uh, and, of course, bleeding. Uh, uh, we have... Uh, chapters and books and lectures on previous and abruption and all that kind of stuff. Guys, the most common cause of bleeding in a pregnancy is because someone has kicked somebody in the stomach or has rolled her down the stairs, right? It's like, why should a placenta just abrupt? You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, you know, remember that, you know, and it's like, now we, we're magging and do we do this and do we that? Did anybody ask her, did somebody hurt her before she came in? Nope, 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 but we got the mag going. All right, well, that's good. Okay, some specific injuries very quickly just for you guys. Bilateral blue, bruising on the upper arms, pretty obvious. You know, that's somebody grabbing them and shaking them. Half moon cuts, ring injuries usually. Somebody who's been punched in the face usually leaves a little half moon cut. Uh, two parallel bruising lines are often from a baseball bat. Uh, oral facial injuries, very, very common. Uh, one of the common, common um, uh, specialties that see domestic violence is dentists and I um, um, am letting myself known to several dentists in the area. Uh, why should so many young women in Orange County have loose teeth? Unless we're sitting around chewing cola nuts, it's because someone has punched them, right? And it's like, oh, you have a loose tooth, let's just uh, charge you hundreds of dollars to fix it but not ask you why that's happening. Petechiae on the roof of the mouth, forced oral sex, injuries in the gums, those kinds of things, very, very common. Loose teeth, petechiae, TMJ, a very common problem in, in uh, abuse because you're just tight, it's like depression and anxiety, but they're holding their teeth so tight. So dentists see a lot of uh, uh, domestic violence. Just want to show you this. What happened to this lady? What's the diagnosis? You saw her right away, what would you think? Everybody tells me number one is punched. She got punched. What would you say? Seeing a little closer. I don't know why this thing doesn't like me. Do, 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 do. There you go. Okay, this happened the next day, like uh, uh, 36 hours, I think, later. What is this, guys? What are you seeing? What are you seeing? Little hemorrhages there. She's got some petechiae that didn't come out very well and bilateral, like black eyes. 
strangulation. This is very important for you guys because we are missing it. We are not asking the question, why do I care? Because strangulation is a lot more than simple assault. This is attempted murder. And almost all the cases of strangulation don't get prosecuted successfully because of us. Because we don't document that injuries are consistent with strangulation. We must learn about this because there's been too many cases we've been really bummed about. It is, it takes it to such a different level. It can be such a, a misdemeanor versus all of us in a very serious felony count. So while we are not law enforcement, we don't want to be impediments to law enforcement or the courts. We want to make things simple and easy. So we have to also reevaluate people who have had a strangulation attempt because they're at risk of what? Aspiration. So you need to always see somebody who's had a strangulation attempt 24 hours later and get a chest x-ray to make sure they're all right. A lot of times, after the assault, the patient doesn't even remember that somebody had their hands around their neck. So you have to kind of ask them and look for bruising around the, the fingers, you know, around the throat. Very, very common, though, that you don't see anything on the patient's, patient's uh, throat. So there's bruising, usually due to the thumb, might not be visible for several hours to days, redness, petechiae around the eyes, subconjunctival uh, sub hemorrhages, rope burns if it's with a rope. Um, uh, neck swelling, but a normal appearing neck is very common. So ask the question, if someone's really beat up, did somebody put their hands around you and try to strangle you? Make sure you're asking that question. Also involuntary urination or defecation. You know, we often think that someone might have had a seizure, but what it was, that there was somebody who was strangling them. Miscarriage can result fetal demise from the lack of oxygen, scratches, abrasions, usually defensive maneuvers. Now, the most important thing for you guys is to actually, oh, I did that too soon, is to actually document what you see. You don't not need to write the great American novel, and you don't need to put your own thoughts. Like, she has this and it looks like this. The bruise looks like it's three days old. Guys, you don't have enough training to say that. You do not know if it's two days or three days. What happens if a physician writes on the chart, this bruise looks like it's three days old? If you go to court, and he actually attacked her two days ago or four days ago, and you said it was a three-day-old bruise, they cannot prosecute. So don't say stuff you don't know. So you just say, you know, it looks green. It looks green and yellow, and it's two centimeters or whatever. Describe, don't make diagnoses or predictions or assumptions. I think it's very, very important. Write it clearly. Uh, doesn't have to be super long, but you know, usually when the DA gets our medical records, they can't read a damn thing. And by the time they get it, you don't remember anything either. So be careful. Well, that's going to be all cleared up with the EMR now, but it's, it was a nightmare. Nobody could read anybody's handwriting. But even, I mean, even with our traumas, like I got called in for a trauma case that I had to mm -hmm. talk about the patient's injuries, and it's like I, I just wrote bruise to that. Yes. You know, yes. In the document. And what they wanted was, where was the laceration? How big was it? And yeah. things like that. And so we really need to Measure, describe, be very meticulous. Because remember, these are going to go to court. 
And so it's it's very important that you document. What did the clothing look like? Was it torn? Uh, did it have green fibers over? Did it have mud on it, dirt on it? Because remember, they're going to put it together with the investigation. So if she was dragged through the mud and put into a van that had green fibers on it, it's going to matter that you say she's got mud and green fibers on her clothing. So so be meticulous. You're a little bit of an investigator, but don't tell a story. Don't make up the novel. I think that's very, very important. Oh, yes. When do you have to report, guys? You know this. Because if anybody in this institution needs to know when you report in California, it's you guys, right? When do you report in the state of California domestic violence? It should be really part of, really, part, really out there. Really, out, really easy for you guys to come up with it. No, not just every time you suspect it. Not, you know, mandated by law. It's okay. It's okay to report it any time you suspect it. But if you do that, you're going to have a whole uh, uh, police force living in the ER, and I don't think that they're going to keep coming back. So when do you, I mean, we can suspect it a lot of times. That doesn't mean that we're mandated by law to call the cops. When are you mandated by law to report? You're a mandated reporter in the state of California. Remember, this is just California. Every state has subtle differences as to when you have to call, the, call police. So when do you? No, no, not just child and elder. You're very, yeah, there you go. You're getting close. When there is an injury that you know or suspect is due to domestic violence. So I could be doing an annual exam, doing a PAP or whatever, and I find out in my universal screening mode that she is in an abusive relationship. Do I have to call the cops? No. I don't. I can if I'm really scared for her or really worried about her and want to have a paper trail or something like that. They often they probably won't come and do anything about it, but, but sometimes the, the, some of the PDs are better and they'll keep a record that I called. But I can educate, I can give her referrals, that sort of stuff. But if she's got some horrible abrasion or some cut or something on the vulva, say, where she, she had, looks like she'd been raped or something, then absolutely, of course, I'm going to report she has an injury. If she has an injury that you know or suspect is due to domestic violence. So even if she says no, even if she says, no, no, uh, the refrigerator fell on my vulva. Okay, well then you go, uh, you know what, I'm still suspecting so strongly that I'm going to call the police, right? Okay. And what if she says she doesn't want you to call the police? You still call. So when you guys are in the ER and you've got a dude coming in with a knife wound, and he says, oh, God, don't call the cops because they're going to kill me if you call the cops. Do you have that choice? Absolutely not. Because his injury is the result of a crime. It's the result of a felony. Domestic violence is a crime. You do not have the choice to say, oh, gee, you know, she, her husband beat her up, but she doesn't want to, you know, it's going to cause her a lot of problems. You don't have that choice because it's just like the guy who got knifed by the gang member down the street, Right? Okay, so you got to call. You got to call immediately and you call who? The police in the city where it happened. So if we're in Orange but she lives in Fullerton and it happened in their home in Fullerton, you call Fullerton PD. You don't call Orange PD. Orange PD would hate us if we kept calling them for every single person in the ear. Then what else do you have to do? A written report within two working days. And it doesn't mean the medical student, the resident, the chief, the attending, just one person. You guys decide as a team who's going to make the written report. Okay? And that's what has to be done. And we should know that, and we probably should be doing it every day. Mm-hmm. Um, if you call the police, 
please, and their injuries are not too bad, and you can send them home. Mm -hmm. Is it okay to just discharge them? So you you are done there. You call the police, and then you can. Discharge. You know that that will be between you and the police. So you call the police, and you say, you know what, um, got a got some injuries. They're minor. But fairly extensive bruising. Uh, she says her husband did it, and uh, they're pretty interesting. And I've treated her for anxiety or for this and, and whatever. She's stable. Um, um, I've, you know, then you can figure out what to do. You can take pictures if you want. Usually, they will come if you have called and there's an injury. Um, remember too, what's the what's the interesting thing there that that we're kind of skirting around? She came to the ER. There's got to be something motivating her because she came to the ER. Is she that scared? Is she, what's going on there? Anyone who already has an injury that she is requiring to have medical attention for is in a lot of danger. And that's kind of part of the reasons why I very much support mandated reporting because, you know, it's a very controversial thing. Not all physicians, in fact, most physicians don't, don't agree with it. And they think that it's so, you know, they, they think they're going to, people aren't going to come for help and all that kind of stuff. The reason I support it, there are a lot of reasons. Number one is the acknowledgement that it's a crime. Um, I think it's the only way for us in the front lines to really do something about it, just like child abuse. Um, but it's also because we have to recognize that by the time it's gotten to that point, she's probably had a lot of injuries and a lot of other things going on, and she's probably quite at risk. So I think if we're going to have a hope of keeping those gunshot wounds and those stab wounds coming in, I think we need to start, start stopping the earlier injuries, and that's what we are not very good at. I think, yeah. Oh, so the question, the example you gave, you know, you're like, the woman had some bruising, and you said, oh, well, she said that it was, like, her husband did it to her. So what if they, like, they don't want it, they said, oh, I was doing something, like, yeah. I shouldn't be doing, but I don't want to tell you the full story of what happened. Obligated then, or well, well, I'm sorry. I'm, I guess I didn't follow. She's not telling you everything that happened. Specifically saying that, like her boyfriend or husband beat her up. Yeah. But she's like, yeah, something happened, but I don't want to tell you what happened. Yeah, and those are those are tough calls, and you know that's when you sit down, maybe spend more time, maybe get a social worker to come in and go, guy, we're worried about you. These are suspicious-looking injuries. Who did this to you? It's not right. No one is. No one deserves to be beaten up like that. It's a crime. What's going on? You know, and, and see if you can see if you can elicit that. And, and you don't have to know. Remember, the law says know or suspect. What's the next thing? That's not, and, and your question sort of implying this. What's our obligation as physicians? It's not just calling the cops, right? I mean, that's just our law. That's a legal obligation. What do we need to know? Yeah. So you're going to discharge her. Your job before you do is to kind of feel pretty good about the fact that she's not going to go home and get shot, right? So then that's part of the reason why we don't ask the question, right? Because then we have to do that. So safety assessments are iffy. But interestingly enough, patients know a lot about them. Ask her, how safe do you feel going home? What's going to happen when you go home? Where are you going? Um, hopefully, she's, you have a lot of options. And that's kind of where the money is, isn't it? What do you do next? Um, it's basically, <sighs> is there somebody else in the house? Where are the children? Is her child abuse going on? If she's got bruises, are there kids at home? Are they safe? You've got to call CPS, right? So you've got to get your social worker involved very, very early. And one of the things that happens to docs is that we feel very overwhelmed very quickly. Oh, my God, there's this, I don't know, is she safe? There's kids. Oh, my God, what do, what do I do? You know what, guys? Make it easy upon yourselves. You are the front line only. Your job is to identify and to figure out, give referrals, and call the right people.
You call social services right away and they're available to you guys. And if anything, you guys are very lucky because you got social services around a lot more than a lot of us in the hospital. So you usually got them around. Then the other thing to do is call somebody at the shelters. They have hotline numbers and counselors that you can talk over the phone. What's happened to me all the time in my office is somebody says, well, yeah, I'm having some problems. Well, you know, that totally screws me up. I got 20 more patients to see or I got to go to the or what do I do? I can't spend five hours trying to figure out what to do with this patient. I get her in a private room. I call the uh, counselor at the shelter and I say, guys, this is Dr. Tui at UCI. I got a patient I'm worried about. I need you to assess her more fully as to whether she should go to the shelter or what her options are. And then they'll sit there and they'll talk to her over the phone and they'll ask a lot more questions than you can or you have time for. And yet you're doing your obligation. So one of the things as physicians, and I'm going to close with this, is that we do not see ourselves as part of the tapestry of healthcare. We consider ourselves to be it. You know, we work very independently. We must see ourselves as colleagues with social workers, with nurses, with shelter counselors, with other specialists, and really, really ask for help much more frequently. We are not one of us ever going to fix domestic violence, but we have to know what our role is and know our role and do it well. And then trust that the courts, the judge, the cops, that the people who are we're all kind of working together will come together and come up with something that makes some sense for our community. And I think that that is kind of a more novel approach for physicians to see themselves as, as part of a team instead of just, you know, we got to have the answers for everything. So think of it that way, that find out who to call. Call me. Call me. Call me if you have a, a question like, oh, who should I call? What should I do? Call me. The more you start doing, the easier it will be. But you guys primarily in the ER need to be comfortable doing this, asking good questions and teaching your other docs in the community and the, uh, and the hospital how to do better. Okay? So remember that to know nothing at least once, once a day. Okay? All right. Uh, guys, I've taken too much of your time. I apologize. I went over. I'm sorry. I started a little late. <laughs> Well, each each um, uh, shelter has hotlines. They have the national hotline number. Okay. Um, you guys don't have that in the ER, the, the hotline number for domestic violence? Let's bring it out of mothballs. Let's bring it, you know what? Um, why don't I review what sources you've got? And I can review that for you guys, get the numbers posted, call them frequently, call for help, and say, you know, it's, and, and when you guys go out to practice in a new community after your residency, call the shelters in that town. I'm a new doc here. I'm the new ER doc at the hospital. I want to know where you are. What are your services? Can I call you if I need some help? Establish relationships with community people. This is how you become an effective doc in this kind of a situation. And, and, and docs don't ever do that. When I did that at the shelter, they went, what? You're a doctor? You want to know about us? It's like no doctor wants to know about us. We, we, we need to change how we practice medicine, and that's, uh, that's one of the ways to be really community-based. So I'll be happy to do that. I'll review what you've got, and I'll see what, uh, I'll correct it, correct it with the numbers that I've got. Okay? All right. Take care. I'm so sorry. I started a little late. I apologize. Uh, this is that article. I'll leave it here in case anybody wants to see it. Nothing magic, but it's a reminder. Hello? Hello? Yes, it is. I'm sorry, who is this?